We are back, and you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Consortium News has a piece, and I think this is a phenomenal piece, The Angry Arab, the Middle East, and the War in Ukraine. Gulf Arab regimes and other developing countries will adjust to a new world order where power is shifting. It is no longer the world the U.S. shaped after the Cold War, writes Azab Abdul Khalil. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's an analyst and host of the podcast, The Left is Dead, James Carey. James, as always, welcome back. Always good to be here. Asab writes, it is premature to determine the exact shape of the world in the wake of the Russian military intervention in Ukraine. At the risk of repeating dreaded cliches, it is clear that the world order has been irrevocably altered. The post-Cold War era is over forever. James, speak to this in the context of mid-September 1990. President George H.W. Bush speaking to Congress about U.S. prospects after Saddam went into Kuwait, telling Congress that the Gulf crisis offered the opportunity for what he called a new world order, a period of international cooperation and peace in which, quote, the rule of law supplants the rule of the jungle, end quote. What has happened to Bush's new world order? What has happened to Reagan and others shining city on a hill? James Carey. Well, I think the first thing we learned is in 2003, we uh, figured out we can't project imperial power the way we thought we were going to be able to. And there was a lot of ideas of leaning on this technology, the drone armies, you know, the no-fly zones, or ideas of leaning on things like sanctions, but that's not working anymore, and it hasn't worked for a while. We showed we can't project force, and now we – so if you can't project force, you can't back up anything else, can you? So we've shown that we, we can't maintain an empire. George H.W. Bush definitely wanted to end the sort of post-Vietnam malaise with, like, this technology thing. You know, the first Gulf War was a tech show, and that projection just did not happen, and I don't see – with the U.S. failures and just the loss of confidence across the Middle East since the war on terror started – I think everyone sees that our empire can't project power, you know, physically, and we're not going to be able to project it economically soon enough if we keep it up. The other thing that happened, um, and that is, when in that period between 1991 and, say, you know, 2017-18, the U.S. became accustomed to only projecting power, and they lost all diplomatic skills and lost all diplomatic um, ability. If you look at the people that— um, you look at Russia's diplomatic corps, look at China's diplomatic corps, and you look start looking at the people, you see people who were worked in diplomacy for years and worked their way up. If you see the U.S., you just they just took some schmuck who went along with the ideology and they threw the person in charge of secretary of state or assistant secretary of state, whatever, because they were an ideological, dogmatic, belie- true believer, but they know nothing about diplomacy. So we have people that just go, go around the running around the world trying to tell everyone what to do. And the U.S. has neither the skills nor the um, proclivities to get involved in dip- diplomacy, which is which is critical. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's no diplomacy, is there? It's always our demand, not really a diplo- diplomatic matter when you just go in making demands. And like I said, we can't back it up. So who cares what we have to say? And 
we don't, you know, we just thought everyone would abide by it forever. That's why we think. But even when we're clearly losing, I mean, look at Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, all these places where we've clearly lost long ago. And we continue to refuse to negotiate anything. Even Ukraine, you know, we refuse to negotiate anything around that. So uh, it just doesn't matter. You know, our our rules are you listen to us or whatever. We try and bomb you. You get sanctioned. And unfortunately for the U.S., it looks like the sanctions won't work much longer, you know. I think also that the ideologues in the United States, as as well as a lot of these military minds, it took them too long to pivot to uh, asymmetrical warfare. There was a book out that I recall, Jihad versus McWorld. Uh, it came out right as, as the whole issue uh, in the Middle East w- was developing. And, uh, I, and again, asymmetrical warfare and the United States couldn't pivot that way. No, the best we had was like, I don't know, Petraeus showing the Battle of Algiers to new recruits or something like that. Um, and I think what you saw during the campaign of 2020 was this try to, this attempt to pivot by both parties back towards the Cold War mindset, you know, because what's better for arms manufacturers than just going back to how we did things for 70 years, you know, pumping out missiles and uh, small arms to go all over the European continent and all over Asia now to, you know, guard against China. So I think that it, it, they wanted to return to this Cold War mindset, but wow, the, the war on terror really blew that chance for them because there's no confidence in them in the U.S. to actually turn on this giant military machine. Because if you can't even do it against some you know group like the Taliban, how are you going to do it against China? And additionally, we're seeing countries now, you know, it's kind of as they see the big guys, the U.S., Russia, China, and they see those, you know, these feuds going on. And no, it's not a feud. There's three great world powers, and one of them is trying to attack and aggressively attack the other two through mainly asymmetric means and overtake the other two. And as they see that, the other countries, the Middle East, for as example, India, other countries are looking at them and they're thinking like like a parliamentary system wherein your party can have five seats, five, just five MPs, but because somebody needs a coalition, you're very powerful and you can punch above your weight. And I think some of these Middle Eastern countries are now saying, yeah, you know, we're not powerful as the great world powers, but we can choose one of them to ally with. And that gives us a tremendous of amount more party, excuse me, power than we would normally have. Your thoughts? I think it's, yeah, that and just the U.S. putting a gun to your head and telling you to pick a side. You know, you can't really do this to people, and you can't do it to people when you show that you have allies like Ukraine where you, t- you know, you pump them up, you pump them up, you get them to you start this conflict, and then what do you do? Sorry, you know, we've got nothing for you. You're not a NATO member. We're not going to protect you. The same Turkey shot down a Russian jet over Syria. You know, nothing happened. NATO did not get involved. So even a NATO member, I don't think that anyone's confident the U.S. is going to step up for them. Is the U.S. going to stop selling arms? Probably not. Why would they? That's our biggest industry as far as selling things, you know, exporting things. But I think that a lot of people are just, you know, when you have a gun to your head, you're not going to choose the side that's put the gun to your head. And you're going to go with a way where it's like, well, if you're forcing me to join now, what are you going to force me to do later? And we already know that the Saudis, you know, as much of a partner as they are, they can't really be told what to do. Um, I noticed that the cover story of the Atlantic this month is now MBS is bad. So I can see that tone switching, you know, and I think that it's just, 
make people make a decision on whether they're going with the West or the East, and I don't think they're going to take kindly to the West saying, you know, telling them to make this decision right now. Asab Abu Khalil writes, the old rules that the U.S. imposed by force will be no more. While China has been cautious in expressing support for Russia in its official pronouncements, its media have been clear in refuting U.S. propaganda claims. The reverberations of the cataclysmic event will be felt for years to come and will be and will affect regional international conflicts. The impact of the Russian-Ukrainian war will also be felt in the Middle East, which has a long history of involvement in the Soviet and Russia-U.S. rivalry. Uh, I'll also add to that, James, that Europe is now having to look at this in a reality up to this point. It has it has not faced, i probably say, since World War II, you know, and that is— we got to heat our homes. And the United States, what you're trying to get us to do is going to make that an awful lot tougher. We want to eat. And 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 Russia is the largest producer of grain in the world. Uh, United States, what you're trying to get us to do isn't in our best interest. Go ahead, James. Yeah, it's very much, you know, it's kind of throwback to the Berlin airlift or something like that, except we don't have the resources to actually do that again. So, yeah, I think that Europe is going to cause a real problem um, because uh, Americans won't care that Germans are paying, you know, 800 times the regular rate for their heating fuel. But the Germans sure will and the French sure will, you know, and people who these European countries that are importing Chinese technology because it's cheaper and they're importing natural resources, like you said, food and gas from Russia. You know, these people are going to feel it way more than the United States, even though, you, you know, citizens of the United States are already feeling this war, obviously, it, you know, to what extent is the oil companies, who knows, but Europe is going to feel the pain of this. And with the way it's been between Europe and the United States already, with the way it's been between, say, the Gulf powers and the U.S., where there's been these sort of, you know, they're like Israel, you can't make any slight condemnation of a Gulf power. And Europe, uh, I don't know. They've been nice since World War II, but I think we've gotten to a point where this time we've left them out in the cold so long. We've forced them into these NATO, you know, missions in Iraq and things like that where they didn't want to go. You know, overwhelming majorities of population didn't want to go. We've undercut them on deals. We left them out in the cold. Now we're literally leaving them out in the cold. I don't think the allies, you know, even our strongest allies aren't going to trust this order after this because who are they closer to? They're closer to Russia. They're closer to China. They're on that side of the world. We're all the way over here trying to make demands of them. And I don't know. We'll stick to, like, fighting in South America, I guess. Well, the other thing I think is, you know, people are looking at now, there are people saying, oh, the the uh, NATO has come closer together. Well, let's look at this three, six months out. Once the people of Europe start feeling the economic pain from the sanctions, I suspect there'll be regime change and it won't be in Russia that some of these leaders um, who have made these rash decisions that will come back to haunt the people of um, of Europe are going to face some fury from their people when their shelves are empty and their their gas is uh, costs more than their rent or their their the cost of their home i suspect in the intermediate to long run dramatic political change in the eu as a result of these sanctions and the backlash yeah i agree i mean we already saw a lot of anti-nato sentiment going around the last election you know we obviously saw brexit as far as the anti-eu and we've seen a lot of people asking why they're in NATO in, in this country and in Europe. And 
Um, you got elections coming up in places like France where this is a key time, man. After COVID, after this, you know, this whole like sanction effort by the United States, there's a lot of Europeans who are going to be thinking, well, this isn't really great. This isn't working out for me. And my president, no matter what they say, or, you know, my, you know, my prime minister, whoever, no matter what they say, they're still, you know, a party of NATO. And I don't want to be a part of this anymore. And, you know, hey, the U.S. isn't going to like it, but maybe that's somebody like Marine Le Pen and France, you know, like there's a lot of people out there who are, do not like NATO. And uh, I think if the U.S. doesn't, I don't know what the U.S. can do, actually. They can't do anything. They could stop invading people. But if the U.S. doesn't actually think of Europe's needs for once, uh, there's going to be real problems. And it, it's not going to be just the European leaders now, but there's going to be a major political shift in Europe. And I think it'll be to the right. We've seen that on the horizon for quite a while. We have just about one minute left. Also, a big problem I see here with NATO is the United States turned it from a defensive organization to an offensive organization. And that's what really has brought us to the to the to the point where we are. We got 30 seconds. Yeah, I mean, it just keeps expanding. Right. And, you know, even if they say and Ukraine's not going to be a member, there's still nukes in Turkey and missiles in Poland. So. Russia's always got the gun pointed at him, so I don't blame him for being mad, and it's getting closer, and I don't blame him for being suspicious that it was coming to Ukraine. And 20,000 NATO forces in Ukraine last year. James Carey, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. All right. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. 